Hello and welcome to another episode of the Warrior Artist Podcast, full of practical advice and inspiration to help you on your creative journey. My name is Aideen Glynn, and today I'm delighted to be joined by visual artist Orla O'Byrne. Orla is based in Cork. She works across a variety of media and techniques, such as drawing, photography, and sculpture. She is interested in overlooked histories of sites and artifacts. She has an MA in Art and Process and a BA in Fine Art from the Crawford College of Art and Design. She is a member of the board of directors of the Backwater Artists, where she was also granted a four-year studio. Some of her awards include the Lavat Gallery Student of the Year and the CIT Registers Prize. Orla, thank you for joining me on the Warrior Artist Podcast. How are you today? I am fine today. It's great to be here, Aideen. Oh, it's great. We had a we had about a half an hour of uh, technical problems, uh, so it's great to actually be talking in person finally. And I just want to ask you: Have you did you always want to be an artist? Um, yes, I think that was a foregone conclusion. Really, um, I was always that person. I think this is probably something that you hear a lot, but I was that person in school who was good at drawing, you know, and uh, I was always going to make art. Definitely, yeah, yeah. And you went, you studied in Kilkenny first, isn't it? That's right. And I was actually in preparation for this um, podcast with you. I was having a little quick look through and I saw a name there, Sheila Walsh. Yes. You have interviewed Sheila Walsh and I haven't spoken to Sheila for about 25 years, but she spoke to you about going to Grenon Mill in County Kilkenny. And I was there with Sheila and not only with Sheila, but I lived in the house with Sheila. So we, no way. Yeah, really? yeah, absolutely. I that. Yeah, I really got sort of goosebumps when I heard that because I just thought, wow, there was something very special about Grenon Mill. Uh, there probably still is. And particularly at that time, I think it was 94 or yeah, it was 1994 when we were there. And uh, we lived in this little tiny cottage in like three miles away from the from the village. And it was a very, very um, sort of potent learning experience, actually, full of, we got a huge range of introductions to many different crafts and things. And then we'd go back to our cottage and cook something and talk about what was happening in college. And I remember it as the most amazing foundation in in uh, making. That's amazing. What a coincidence. That, I suppose that's Ireland, isn't it? Everything is kind of connected. But yeah, no, I got goosebumps and you said that. That's amazing. That's so interesting. Um, and yeah. from there, you went to the Crawford. And was that a very different experience? Oh, well, that's a very um, roundabout way that I ended up in the Crawford. I didn't go from there to the Crawford at all. I, I That was in the 90s. And then I, I was sort of, um, I'd say, determined not to go to art college for a while. And I don't know what that was about. I think there was a weight of expectation. And I had a kind of an instinctive I didn't want to, uh, I thought, like sort of subject myself to everyone else's ideas about what I should make and do. And I think, and I also, I think I was being just a bit rebellious too, that there was an expectation that I would go to art college and I just decided I wouldn't. So I went, to, but they did persuade me to go to Grenon Mill and do something. And uh, when I finished in Grenon Mill, I came back to Cork and uh, my former secondary school they had um, a vacancy in the art department and this couldn't happen now, I don't think, because I wasn't a qualified teacher, but I, they gave me a year there and I taught. Um, it was an Irish speaking school, so it was difficult for them to find somebody who could speak fluent Irish. And I was able to go in there and I, I taught people virtually my own age. And I, I taught the whole, all the years and everything and helped them to, the, to kind of 
to get through their leaving cert and uh, found that an amazing experience. And then it came to the end of the year and then there was a sort of an expectation on me that I'd found something that would be good and maybe I should go and be an art teacher. So would I go and study to be an art teacher? And again, I sort of, I just revolted against that too and I didn't want to. So life was getting really interesting at that stage and I went and moved to uh, Amsterdam and I lived there for three years. And while I was there, I was being an artist, but I was also being a chambermaid and, uh, you know, working at <laughs> pubs and doing all that. But in my heart, doing art, being very interested in art, living with an artist, but uh, probably not making great career strides, you know, but really ticking off a lot of life experience. And some of it was tricky and some of it was good. And then um, carried on traveling and didn't actually end up going to the Crawford until I was 35. So that's about 10, 11 years ago. So it was a huge, there was a big circuitous route and there were other points along that journey too that um, uh, they were like my little pockets of education on the way, but I sort of pieced it together and it's only 10 years ago that I went to college. But that's so amazing and it's so important to travel. I think we've all done that kind of chambermaiding um, mm. experience. <laughs> Oh yeah, and I actually remember I, I spent some time in Amsterdam. And there's incredible art there and amazing museums. Mm. I remember their money was so beautiful. That you know, the um, back when we used to have a pre-EU EU when it was Love all these individual gilding. currencies, and you'd have envelopes of different currencies. And being on mainland continent Europe, it's so easy to get on a train or a bus and go to another city yes. and go and like go and see art. Like I remember, I lived in Paris for a year and I was nineteen, so I can identify with that um, story of. Um, being as an artist and spending a lot of time looking at art and but maybe yeah. that all is part of that process so you are uh where are you from Cork then Orla I am. yeah you're in Cork but you went to Kenny uh to study where you met Sheila and then you ended up teaching and where was the art school the school where you taught art uh Colossian Fiercing in Glenmire that's oh. the school that I went to uh, that's another little connection now because I've actually was recently I know the I don't know if you know one of the art teacher there who's also a member of the Backwater um, artist network and she recently invited me to do a talk to the the oh. teacher so I was actually in that art department oh. very recently it's a beautiful beautiful class well it is now I think it, it was a little bit underdeveloped say when I was there um and it was uh there was a there was a great very caring and listening and lovely art teacher there and one thing happened when I was there actually when I was in school in fifth year there was an again, there was a vacancy and they needed somebody to come and stand in. And it was Kieran Langford that came and gave us a kind of two months of his time. And, and I remember that being an eye-opening experience. I think that was my biggest eye-opening experience, actually. He was an amazing artist and a really uh, generous and enthusiastic kind of person. So, yeah, I had some good experiences in that art department and some sort of, you know, it's school after all. And I was a bit yeah, I was just a bit bored at school all the time, like a lot of us. Oh, yeah. Well, school is hard. It is Isn't really it? hard. Yeah. And how incredible that they, they reached out to you to come back and teach. And your parents were probably thinking, that's great now. She's sorted. She's going to be an art yeah. teacher. Yeah, they bought me some appropriate art teacher clothes, <laughs> like a little jacket and stuff. <laughs> a jacket. Oh. Yeah. yeah. So I went and did oh, that. Wow. And then yeah. when you finally went to the Crawford to art school, we were ready then, of course. And of course, you won graduate of the year. You did very well then. So maybe you needed to grow up and have lived life to really gain from that experience. Did you love it when you went back? 
Oh yeah, I did love it very much. It was there was um I kind of run to because in that gap of ten years that I'm talking about before I actually made it into the Crawford, I had done other. I've always been making art. I always tried to have a studio somewhere, and I was, but I didn't know sort of there were so many questions. I had so many questions, and not a great network, and and I hadn't met a lot of artists, and it all felt a little bit inaccessible or something. But I was still determined. I but you know, but I was very much in my head. And uh, I had children in that time. We started a business in that time, uh, you know, just so much. I fell in love and all this stuff. And so life had uh, thrown up all these kind of interesting stuff. So by the time I got to the Crawford then, yeah, as you say, I think I was finally ready. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And what age were your children then when you went back to the Crawford? They were um, four and six. That's tricky. So they, they hardly remember a time when I haven't been in college, you know. Okay. <laughs> their That's whole their life. experience. Yeah. Uh, and what kind of work were you making in that time before you went back to Crawford? Was it like, like your practice is so broad now? Was that yeah. the kind of practice you always had or was it different? Um, I've always done lots of different things. And I actually would bring that back to Grennan Mill and the foundation and lots of things. Uh, I've always stayed open to different materials and it's sort of sometimes my work is just about material, you know, um, but I um, was drawing and drawing and drawing. This is the, the beauty of drawing is that it's portable and immediate. And I think that was why I really became, I was a very um, dedicated life drawer. And I went to this place called Pine Street Studios. It's not there anymore. Um, and it was... Um, down well it doesn't matter it's in the city it's small little I think it's been demolished and turned into a car park now oh, but in Cork. In, yeah in Cork and in Pine Street Studios there I heard that there was a live drawing session going on um and in there was Joe Allen and Eileen Healy and Lorraine Cook and Susie O'Malan these artists very serious bit older than me grown-up proper artists and I was really brave, I think, now looking back, because I just was a bit inexperienced. And I went and I I, uh, I heard that you could pay to join. And so I did just go and pay and join. And I think they sort of tolerated me. I wouldn't say it was a, it was, um you know, like a warm, come on in, we'll tell you everything we know. It was pretty serious in there. And I really had to push myself hard to be like, um, you know, to kind of keep up with what was going on. And I did that for at least a year, maybe a year and a half or so. And it was one of the best learning things. So the sort of work that I was making by then that I piled into my portfolio when I wanted to go to college, there was a lot of drawing, charcoal and pencil and experimental big drawings. And I was sort of looking around and seeing what they were doing and, you know, learning from the people around me without them really, you know, <laughs> noticing probably. And I was very, I was brave to decide to go back to art college like that. And uh, we were just talking off air. I saw the first time I came across you was the you were awarded an exhibition as part of your um, award of the in the Lava Gallery Student of the Year, and there were these projected uh, charcoal drawings, and there were also these really beautiful casts, sort of um, like you they were you call them the Eleanor casts, and they were where you'd made an imprint. And then you'd made an imprint of an imprint. So each cast was faded and it was like a kind of almost like that kind of faded photographic record. Can you, you call them the Eleanor casts? Can you describe a little bit of that process and tell us about who Eleanor was? Yeah, I'd be delighted to. 
a uh, long time since I've thought about her, actually. First, I'll tell you who she is. Eleanor Code was um, an extraordinary woman who was born in 1733 in England, in Deptford, outside London, or is that in London? And uh, she was born into a family of merchants. I think they made um, cloth or something. And so she was always, I th always think of her as being around material a lot. But I think they were quite a well-to-do family. And she got into this process um, of making a sort of, they called it, she called it uh, lithodipyra or something. It means uh, twice, it's like twice cooked stone or something. So it's it's like, it's um it's an alternative to stone. So it's like, um, it's not quite ceramic and it's not quite stone. It's as hard as stone and it lasts like stone. Did she invented then actually. She Yeah, she joined with um somebody else who was already making experiments and she developed the the actual stuff, the material with him. And then they opened a factory and it was just at the right time because architects everywhere were really um starting to do really decorative work and all the big houses wanted these things like lions and wonderful glorious religious things and all sorts of things. Um, fountains were big, you know, so uh, there was a lot of work for them. So she she grew this company and she grew it into, I think they had two workshops or maybe three. Um, and uh, she started employing people and then she had lots of people working for her. And she took on partners at various stages. Now, she never married, um, but she had two or three different business partners and they were men. And I imagine that that was handy at the time to have a male voice. It's probably... Um, maybe a little still like that, I'm not sure, but it worked very well for her to have a male partner. Um, but then she would sort of, you know, sometimes they fell out or I don't know the, the sort of details. Anyway, so she was an amazing woman and she built up this fantastic um, product that she was selling far and wide. And there is still code stone being made now, but I don't think it's, it's not an evolution of that company. So that's Eleanor Code. And I was reading all about her and finding her fascinating. And um, the and the material itself as well, what that is, because it's kind of it's always overlooked. It's like because it's not ceramic and it's not stone. So it's this. But you do see them around. There are quite a lot of them. There are 300 at least code stone pieces around the British Isles. As they call them. And um, I so I was reading the book and in the back of the book, there is a list of the ones that they know where they are and the ones that they don't know where they are. So they've looked at the factory records and they've seen that some of these um, pieces are still, you can sort of trace where they are. And some of them have changed hands or they've lost contact and they don't know where they are. And then I found one and I, it's, I won't say where it is, but I, so oh, I you found. you have to tell us where it is. I don't think I can. <laughs> I don't think I can. Just to tell you that it's in Cork. And I was just amazed because in the back of the book, now I can't, I haven't gone full fully into this I got sort of distracted but um in the back of the book there is something that looks like a group of figures that would be this one and it's written marked as lost so that just grabbed me wow. straight so I think I know where it is but I can't divulge because it's a big secret but um in Cork City yes and I got close to it and close enough so, you, so just bring you back so you recognize the photograph at the back of the book and you went yeah. I think that's yeah I think this that's one that, that I've seen in court because you're interested yeah. in yeah. sculpture so you thought that's yeah. the same as that photograph yeah it's not there wasn't a photograph it was just a description a written description, description. and I thought that could be that but I'm not going to sort of I don't know 
I'm only interested in it from sort of one point of view. I don't really want to, uh, you know, make a big deal out of it, I suppose. Well, I was at the talk where you divulged where it was. So Yeah, okay. But I just, I, now I'm kind of aware that it's like a little more public. That was just, you know, if there were only... But I love that. It was a whole people there. kamikaze detective story. Yeah, and sure. The piece and then secretly going yeah. and making, um, yeah. what you call it, unauthorized casting, which is... Yeah. It's yeah. real. Um, I just love the whole adventure side of it, the detective side. Oh, yeah. I think like the world of casting is full of subterfuge and sneakiness. And I mean, it, the thing is about my casting is my sort of maverick casting. I'm not trying to pass it off as the original object. So it's not something I'm not, you know, in, engaging in anything illegal here. Um, but anyway, so long, okay, long story. Describe the but process. I, so just because I, I right. want to know how it happens without you saying yeah. where it is. Yes. So do you have like a bucket of material and you're I have a hot water bottle <laughs> and wrapped and then wrapped around that are sheets of very soft plasticine and they're kept soft because the hot water bottle's hot. And then there um there's cling film around that to make sure that nothing is damaged or anything. And then that is with me, you know, in a bag or something. And then sometimes I might have like a high-vis jacket or a ladder or whatever I needed. <laughs> <laughs> and I have a van, so I look like, you know. To look the part. Proper. Yeah, look the Oh, part. there goes that art student yeah. again, you know, doing all that art student yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, and then I just try to get close to things and see if I can just take a sneaky little impression. Yeah. So you so, unwrap this plasticine from your hot water bottle. I just love the yeah. hot water bottle. It's like a real, yeah. real woman thing to have, isn't it? We all have a hot water bottle. <laughs> yeah. And you just make this impression with yeah. plasticine yeah. and then what do you do how do you preserve that do you put it back in the hot water bottle no then it would go soft. He, so then I very carefully put it into a box and a box. put it gently on the seat next to me in the van and drive back to my studio and then I have wooden boxes that the plasticine fits into and then I can sort of um seal all the edges so nothing goes through so the wet plaster won't dribble through and then just try and it's something about the process of trying to preserve as much of that fleeting little contact with that object so it's a, you only have a fleeting moment and it could be just, you might just get a little tiny impression, but those things are actually very precious. Um, so then I bring that back to my studio, put it in the wooden box, mix up my plaster, pour my plaster in and then wait and then get to peel off. And in the process of taking the plasticine off, that's destroyed. So there's no more record of that. And all you have left is whatever you've managed to make underneath. So it's quite, um, yeah, lovely. And then so with that process, then I've got one that's hopefully a little bit clear, you know, some good, in this case, facial features. And then that's all I've got. And I'm not going back to do another one to the to the original or anything. So I'm just using that. So then I sort of recreate that process again and again and with again. Plasticine with first. plasticine, yeah, warm it up a little bit, press it against it, back in the box, make another one and then put those to one side and then from the most recent one, make another cast. And you'll notice it gets more, it just fades, as you said, it sort of becomes less distinct because I'm pressing and I'm not doing a perfect cast all the time. So it's getting less and less distinct. And it's amazing. I love that sort of, there's a sense of it going away. Yeah, and the way they line them up, there can be, a, they sort of coming into existence and, and going out of existence. And it's a, you know, I suppose it's, it's a comment on the, transience of everything really. yeah the ephemeral nature of it and that is so I just love that story though of how you you know how you did it um and can I ask you about the code stone is there any way of identifying it as code like is there like apart from like looking at it do they look different do they look the same as stone like how I do you know 
This one was the code stone, the one you cast it's from. Because it has uh, the stamp on it from oh. the factory in Lambeth, yeah. So What's that's the stamp? I, uh, it's, it? it's just the, it's the word code and Lambeth and the year, and it's a particular font. So it's <sighs> like, yeah. So you definitely. found that on the base somewhere of it, yeah. so you know that's the yeah. code. Yes, yeah. Oh, that is, so that's brilliant. Yeah. I really I love that. I could just see... Um, also, just as sort of going off on a tangent, but I love, I was looking at your website and I love the way you write about your process and about your exhibitions. And it's, to me, it's the opposite of art speak. Mm. If I did a degree in literature, I didn't do art and I find art speak and art, the way people write about art, very obtuse and inaccessible. And I think the way you write is complete opposite. You write this sort of story and you write almost this autobiographical feelings about what you're like, you read what you're describing there, the process and how you felt and the excitement and the transience. And I just think it's um, really interesting and it adds so much to the end piece. Um, because I actually bought, I was just telling you off air that I bought two of those Eleonora casts for my husband. Our birthdays are in the same week and we often buy buy a piece of joint art or something like that um, every year we try and do this and when I bought it the lab had actually then emailed me your writing um, about it so that kind of accompanied it and it was a little bit uh, not as in-depth as what you just told me there but a little bit about about the about who it was and the process um, and yeah it's fascinating but I just I like the way you write as well. <laughs> Thank you. I think that um, the arts speak that you're talking about can actually take away from the work sometimes don't you it's um it's tricky but I've I've discovered recently enough that I really like writing um or I really like writing about my work and I don't know that it's not that's something that only happened during the MA when I know in our in our sort of um story we're not to the MA yet but but I wanted to write and we had to write this um research paper and I wrote part of it as a sort of a journaling sort of style, which they were not sure about me doing that because that's a bit tricky and I, I understand why. But um, I, it was just like a compulsion. I, I was having this experience with a material and I just wanted to express it and words kept popping into my head. And that's never really happened because I'm a maker and I am visual, you know, but uh, recently I've realized that I like talking about my work, which I never thought I did. And I like writing about it. So real, re real kind of revelation there. Yes, and I actually did. I read that um, in preparation for this, and I loved the way you wrote. And I just thought it was—I think it is unique, and I think it's very—it's very accessible. And it that you you write like um, and well, let's jump into it since you brought it up. So the for people who are not in Cork, um, the Crawford Art Gallery is in the centre of the city. It's this little jewel of a building that we is much treasured and much loved. And um, now it's a very exciting time, 23. They've just uh, received a grant that they're going to be redeveloping it. And it's going to very sadly close for a couple of years while they do that. And you got this opportunity before it closed to go in and document the building and the history of the building. But you're not interested in documenting, you know, the stuff everyone sees. You're, you like these little accidents and these little unusual things little hidden objects a bit like finding that little code stone that nobody knew was there and can you tell us about this um this research project this residential project that you created in the Crawford mm, yes um so it started a few a couple of years ago 
and um it you know i've been fascinated by the crawford and everything in it for loads of years actually i in my degree show there was work about the canova casts which is a collection of sculptures which are in the crawford and i was always interested in the ones that we have there are 14 of them there but the fact that there are 200 that arrived 200 years ago and don't exist anymore and are nowhere. So my interest was in what was in the Crawford, but my real um, inspiration was in the backstory of behind the Canova casts. And I think it sort of came from there. Then I, I, so I was thinking about the Crawford and going in there a lot and everything and thinking about it as the old art school, because that's where the School of Art used to be. It was the Cork School of Art right up until 1979. And, you know, this is a small town, so there are lots of people around who were actually students in that building. And the connections just start to get more and more because sometimes I tell people I'm in the Crawford or when I was a student, I would say that. And they assume that I'm in that place because it's also called the Crawford and it's and some people still call it the School of Art. Yeah. So there are these many, many overlapping things between the place I was studying and that building. Um, and so I was talking to the curator there Michael Waldron Dr Michael Waldron and uh we're talking about the renovation that was coming up and I said do you think I could send a proposal for um, a residency where I would be allowed behind the scenes and to document the place before it changes and he was so like he's just he's wonderful he's so encouraging and he said give it a bash Let's write it down write what you want to do it's not a given because of course like they are they have a huge job to do all every day and especially with the renovation coming up and, you know, also they're custodians of all this amazing art and things and they can't just have people like me wandering around. And I would say with my reputation for taking illicit plaster casts of things, it would probably not be great to have me behind the scenes too. That's a possibility, right? Uh, but I put together a proposal and sort of worked it and worked it. And first it was too broad. I told them I just wanted to do everything. It was kind of like yeah. I would come in there and I'm just kind of going to engage with everything. And that was far too wide. And I narrowed it down to something that was more understandable, really. That's like this place is on the cusp of change. There has been another change in the past when it changed from being the, the school of art to being the um, to being the art gallery. And I want to be here to just before it changes, because we often forget, you know, when something new happens and there's a big renovation and it's exciting, the new thing obliterates the memory of the old thing. And you go into a room and you think, where was the door? I yes. don't remember how this used to be. And it wouldn't be lovely in this case if I could be in there because, you know, the lecture theatre and all these old corridors and things that have been used for so many years in that way are now going to be put into different use. And, uh, oh, so they're eventually... all going to disappear. So you're documenting things that are going to yeah. be gone. The yeah. ways that won't be there anymore and rooms which will look different and probably smell different and all that, you know. Um, and in some cases, in some places, I mean, it's going to be the most amazing and I think I really believe sensitive redevelopment of that building and keeping so much of the character intact. But every time there's a redevelopment, it's sort of a payoff and you do lose something. And I'm interested just in like looking at that. What's that thing that we're saying goodbye to, you know? Uh, so, yeah, so it I've has these all... wonderful old creaky stairs and, you know, mm. it, it is an extraordinary building, actually. Um, the but floor it is, is alone. It yeah. is dated for display of art as contemporary in a contemporary way. So I can see why they're excited about the change. But mm. yeah, I thought it was amazing. I only discovered you were doing that because I saw your... Some of those photographs are in the current exhibition there. You'd photograph mm -hmm. of um, 
Is it a pole that's used to open windows and you did a photograph in black and white with all the scratchings left yeah. on the side from the tool? What's that tool called? That's right. It's a, just a window pole. You know, window it's for pole. opening the window, but it's brass and it's ancient and it just lives in the staff room in the corner and they use it just have been using it for ages to open and close the window. And it's made, it's created this found drawing in the corner with these like lovely scratches. And I, you know, you can read it as a series of days or a series of moments or a series of window opening, window openings. And uh, yeah, when I stumbled upon that, I just like, and the places, of course, a very old building and full of those sort of physical material signs of the stories that are contained within the building, you know, it's, it's just, I just love that stuff so much. And tell us about the, the slides. Okay. <laughs> uh, the slides. I'll tell you, how, well, how I, there's a little quick little story about how I stumbled upon them. So when I was on my residency and I was using old photographs that they showed me of um, the former teaching rooms in the building when it was an art school, and I was using them to um, sort of uh, locate myself in the building, you know, because a lot of their partitions and things have changed and rooms are different now. Um, but by looking up, I was able to look at the photographs and look at the beams because things up high don't really change as much as they do on the ground. So I was able to find... And so I was looking at this photograph and I thought this room doesn't make sense, but the beams look the same, but it's weird. So I flipped it on my phone and I thought that that actually, oh, now the room sort of makes sense. I think it's been printed in reverse. I'm not sure if I was right about that in the end, but it led to something. So I went back to the team and I said, I think that this has been printed in reverse. If you'd like, if you have the negatives from these, or if you want me to, you know, um, even just take photographs of them, I can flip it so that at least the people that come to see those pictures in future can um, can see the rooms and identify the different spaces. And they said, we don't have those negatives, um, but what we do have is these boxes of old glass slides, if they're of any interest to you. They're in the library, or they had been in the library for a long time, and they were the old original collection of glass teaching slides that they used to teach the art students and as it turns out the architecture students in the college and I was sort of like oh yeah I'd love that forget about that and I think I was wrong about that room flipping thing anyway and that just didn't matter anymore but this was like opening the door to this amazing thing so then it got really interesting so then I asked whether Obviously, I could look at them. So we went to look at them. And there are these beautiful little, um, they're three-inch square sort of magic lantern slides mostly. And they are dated back. There are dates on them and lovely old handwriting and, you know, dates like 1890 and 1910, that sort of age. And um, there are 23 boxes of them. And they allowed me to sign out. I've taken five boxes so far and digitize them, also sort of just clean them and examine them and, you know, engage, as we say, engage with them. And uh, so that's how that process started. And it, it just one of the things that is really amazing about them is that they haven't been used for a long time and they are in some sort of order. And that's something that I love is that they're in these old wooden boxes and they're probably in the order that they went back in the box after the last lecture. You know, I don't, I don't, I, that's sort of a maybe fanciful idea, but no. I think as I was pulling them out, I thought this, there's something about the order of these that also tells a story, you know, uh, and they're covered in, there are lots of scratches and 
those scratches all happened at certain times. So that sort of like layered history of them is embedded in them as objects as well. And some of them are cracked and some of them make no sense. You know, some of them are, some of them look like the bog standard old slides. You could buy slides of famous places. So you couldn't teach your students about the pyramids and you could buy a set of slides that would sort of, uh, you know, that a lot of people had the same slide. But then there are some where they look like somebody's personal collection and in some they're the same figure you know like so there's a fella standing on a roof who's showing this roof in a place in France and then there's a guy lying on a beach somewhere and there's nothing interesting about the beach really so I presume it's about I I just really am fascinated by them and I think I've only looked at a portion of them and I think that in in there there are so many stories it's like a rich rich um, exciting project that um, I can't wait to crack on with. And you're interested in the anomalies and the ones that are different. Like, so you've, um, go back to what is the magic lantern? Describe that to people, anybody who doesn't know. Uh, a magic lantern is an old, the first projector. So it's, uh, originally there would be a candle in it. It looks like a sort of a big box with a lens on the front and there's a place for a light underneath and you put the slide in it upside down and then it does its, you know, crisscross light projection thing and you could get quite a big um, image from it and it was really popular in the at the turn of the century magic lantern shows so there would be slides uh, you know that would tell a story and I think they'd have music and and things too but a magic lantern itself is just basically a big old big old clunky projector and that yeah have you been able to uncover who this man is or discover no, there are initials, you know, there are initials on the slides and I'm interested in that. And I actually, I have an old prospectus of the college now and there are, there, I've been trying to match the initials because that is from uh, 1950 or in the 1950s, the prospectus. So I'm sort of thinking that maybe these slides could have been, you know, they could have been old then. And anyway, I've seen some initials on the prospectus that maybe I match up, but it could be completely just. Could be a student, could have been a, a, a teacher as well. Yeah. yeah. This, this yeah. person's figure yeah. who caught the eye of whoever's taking the photo. Yeah. yeah. I'm not, you know, <laughs> young I'm, man. I'm not so interested in finding the facts somehow about these. It's like, it would be great to get to the nub of a story and to find out that there was this guy and that, but that would, I know me and that would send me on some other sort of tangent and I'd end up over there, you know? So uh, yeah, for now it's just about um, seeing what other stories are sort of in. And are you going to keep going through all these boxes? Like, um, yeah, I mean, if they'll they'll have me, I'm waiting now to find out whether that's uh, the thing that I do next, you know? Um, And I'm still talking to them about that. So yeah, hopefully. But that is it. And tell us about the one you found of the sunset, Bay of Biscay. The sunset, that comes from um, the same box that the man is standing on the roof that I just mentioned. And it's kind of an interesting box, but it was mostly cathedrals. So I, and I found out subsequently that there was a, the architecture school was, was part of this, um, was part of the college. And so those slides are probably part of the architecture school, I think, because they, they're they all very architectural. There's lots of pictures of columns and the interiors of all these cathedrals. So I was there and I was looking through them and I was starting to fade a little bit. I was getting a little bit like, OK, what am I doing here? I'm just looking at cathedral after cathedral after cathedral. And they're starting to all look a bit the same and I'm cleaning them. But what else am I doing? And then I kind of pulled out this one slide and I knew 
before I looked really closely at it or held it up to the light, which is what I was doing, that it was different because it didn't have any architectural lines on it. It was just a very fuzzy one. And I held it up to the light and it just, it was just a picture of a sunset. The most deeply romantic looking thing. I mean, a sunset's a beautiful romantic thing anyway. It seems to have like a little column of smoke as well, which might be coming from the boat. I don't know. And it just says along the bottom, sunset, Bay of Biscay, 1891. And I just thought, so is this in a lecture? I mean, like, what is this? Because it's cathedral, cathedral, sunset, cathedral, cathedral. So what I wonder, you know, it's just a sort of a a point of wonderment, really, like what it's doing there. But also it did it triggered something else in me because um, at that time I was, so I was doing the MA and I was using this Crawford project as part of what I was trying to do in the MA. And it was all becoming like a little bit big and overwhelming, really. The idea of a whole building that I was supposed to, that I had told myself that I was somehow supposed to engage with, it was all becoming overwhelming. And when I pulled out that slide, I sort of, it it helped me to focus down on one little thing. I just thought, oh, okay, this is one moment of all these moments. I can just focus on this and I want to draw this. So I made a little print of the slide and I just gave myself permission to forget about everything else. It was like, it was so beautiful that it sort of dragged me in. And it was lovely and relaxing to be able to just focus on beauty and for the hell of it and just I'm going to make something. And so I made a print of it about a foot by a foot, you know, on the computer in college. And then I just brought it back to my studio. And then I was looking at it and I just thought, I don't want to I don't want to look at it anymore because, you know, the way you become habituated to something if you look at it too much. And I just never wanted to get used to it. You know, that feeling I just wanted to always have it fresh. So I quickly covered it. And then I just uncovered a bit at a time in sections and I had a huge, you know, the big Fabriano 150 wide paper and I rolled that out and I just made, I cut it to a square because the thing is a square and I sectioned that off as well. I just started drawing the slide in sections and I started with the sky and I drew that and I drew in all the scratches as well because to me, I'm drawing the object. So the scratches are part of it. And they're the, they're also part of the history and the story and the layered time that's in that object. So I drew it section by section in the sky. And then I went, I'll, I'll go to the bottom. So I drew the sea section by section. And then I left all the lines there because they were sort of the lines I mean from the sectioning that because because they are sort of part of the story too. I didn't do this drawing all in one day, you know. I was going to ask you about the lines because I saw a Mm. photograph of this. Are they folds or do you actually draw the lines of the squares? Uh, No, I did nothing. I just left them there. So so I'm using charcoal and it's messy and I'm using big strips of wallpaper to cover up all these sections on this big drawing. And I'm I'm looking at a little section there. So imagine like a little bit of sky and then a little section there on the paper, a big section, but reflecting that on the paper. And I just draw. And then I cover up that bit of sky and uncover the next bit. And I move across the paper. So the lines just occur. The lines are kind of the marks of the making of the drawing, actually. And the wallpaper. Because I'm, yeah. never, I'm drawing by eye, so, so I'm not going to be exactly right. So there's a little sort of jump usually um, from one section to the next, you know. But I think that, that I just decided there's something sort of filmic about it as well. It looks like a sequence then when you look across the drawing and you read it from left to right, as we tend to do, it, it jumps and there's a sort of a movement initiated in your eye as well. It's very, I like it. So I just leave it and it's, you know, I don't have to worry about 
tidying up all these lines, you know. It's no, simple. I love that. But I was interested yeah. in how they were created because I just saw a photograph on your website of it. So I'm not looking in front of the objects. I was thinking, are they folds? Or what are those lines? So that's yeah. really interesting yeah. for me to know how they were made. And yeah. the, it is filmic, like the sequence of the slides as well, the, yeah. the, the little shapes. Yeah. Um, and the like what you were saying there about being overwhelmed, like you wrote something really beautiful, which I just thought because we all we all get that feeling of feeling overwhelmed. Mm. Um, and I just liked your honesty and sharing that because sometimes when you see projects, you know, they all seem so complete and you just think, oh, the person's just arrived at that. And, you know, they're somehow this like big artist up there on pedestal. She talked about this sort of autobiographical element of, you know, slide after slide. What am I looking at? What am I looking for? My mind goes to the larger project. I've been inwardly miserable about my Crawford residency. I've been overwhelmed, blinded by it all. I just loved that, um, you know, you were being really honest and just saying, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> and it's yeah. too big. And then you found the sun was the way in. And then you went back to the Crawford and used that insight of the sun, the sun in that slide is the same sun we have today. The person who photographed that is gone, but I'm still here in front of the same sun and you're connected to that mm. person. And that was just a really amazing uh, description and describe then what happened when you were back to the Crawford with this revelation of the focus of the sun. Yeah. So I, so I, as you say there, there was a moment of clarity where I looked where I, I had to slide up to the sun to, to look at the picture of the sun. And then I went, it's the same sun. It's the same thing. It's just day after day. It moves. We move. It moves. It's the cyclical nature of everything suddenly gave me an in. And the idea that in all those slides of cathedrals that I was getting a little bit bored of looking at, it's, it was actually suddenly I went back and looked at them all and I was like, it's a day. I'm looking at I'm looking at a day as well as looking at a cathedral. I'm looking at the slant of that light that only happened on that one day, that one time. And it's like a, this sort of time thing. So I went, oh, I felt a lot more liberated. And all that drawing really helped as well. I did those huge drawings of that slide. And that was like, oh, yeah, I felt lighter. And I felt like I didn't want to go back in all heavy. So I went and got myself some disposable cameras. And I just went back to the Crawford. And I didn't make a plan with the curator or anything. And I just walked in like I didn't have a lanyard. You know, I went in just like everybody else. And I walked through the building. But just before I got to the inside of the building, I stood on the steps and I just turned around and I thought, oh, there it was a lovely sun with some clouds. And I just looked up at the sky. I was like, oh, and I pointed my camera up and took a little click and thought, like, that's my timestamp for today. That's today now. And then I went in and then I took photographs of the light that comes in all those windows. The turret there is not going to change. So the light that comes in the windows from those turret windows in the Crawford, this sort of lovely roundy shape that they just come in every day and they sweep through the turret and then they go. And then the next day they come in and they do the same thing. And it's like, I've got them on one particular day and that day is gone now. So yeah. And those, I'm still working actually a lot with those drawings and I'll tell you about that in a minute. Yeah. So but that's it. Disposable cameras. Interesting because um, that surprised me because you talk about your interest in analog photography. So mm -hmm. I'm assuming you're doing all these uh, photographs in that kind of process, but you use disposable photographs, not your phone. Yeah, so the disposable one, it's I just like it because I like to work in the dark room. And so if you use one of those, you know, those boots chemists have them. You can get quite an OK 
uh, shot. And um, so analog photography equipment that I use is pretty clunky and big and, you know, very noticeable. If you bring it anywhere, everybody stops and talks to you all the time, especially if you're using a big old box camera, you know, or one that you put in your head under the Is that dark. actually what you're, you have? You have those sort of like... I actually don't have access anymore because they're in college. I'm going to buy okay. myself one, I think. But I like shooting big, large format on those big old cameras. Um, but just that day, I just wanted, I wanted to do something where I was taking quick shots, but I just want, I like using the darkroom because um, I think, well, this is sort of something to do with the material there, the material element of what you're doing. So if I use my disposable camera and take a photograph of that light on that day and then bring it back to the darkroom and develop it, there's been, there's um, a lovely sort of continuous, tangible thing to it. I just... I don't know, it happened a few years ago under the tuition of Roseanne Lynch, who just made everyone in her class completely fall in love with analog. Uh, yeah, so I used those cameras on that day. I used different cameras on different days and I used my digital camera as well. But um, just on that particular day, it felt right because it was all very throwaway. It was all very like, I'm going to be different about this. I'm loose and I'm free and I'm just in here and I'm just going click and then winding it on. You know, that sound like and then click. Yes. And yeah, I loved the results of that, actually. It's great. Very freeing. Your process is so uh, broad, Orla, as well. You, you're just like you're into drawing and you use charcoal, but you often use like dust char and you like that kind of um, ephemera and, you, and you're doing sculpture, these moulds, these imprints and stone carvings as well and photography. Have you always been, you talked about that, so that was the, the your founding in Grenland Mills that gave you that broad interest. But I'm just curious, in your how is your studio set up with all these different things that you're doing? And do you go from one to the other, or is it like periods of time on one and then you switch? Um, I have, you know, I have different areas. It might not be clear to anybody else who went in, but there's a definite sort of more um there's a draw there's a drawing area and there's a sculptural area. So I always tend to shove my bits of stone and my plaster cast over on one side. And I'm trying to keep them a little bit separate, but I usually am working on more than one thing at a time. And I don't know whether that's great. I, I don't know. It just seems to be the way I work. It's as if, um, because different days have different feelings. And if I have a few different things on the boil, then I can, as long as there's no time pressure, I can choose, you know, that it's more of a, feels more like a really, um, feels more like a drawing day or if you know it feels more like I'd like to do something mundane you know which could be just like making plaster cast is pretty you know it's mixing up plaster you don't need to think a lot so I'm gonna today is more of a day where I'm gonna listen to a podcast and just mix up plaster so I like to have a few different things on the go because it's you're not magic all the time you know <laughs> it's based on your mood uh what yeah, you do I think so yeah and tell us about your you did research research um but in a marble quarrying area in Italy, it sounded really mm. interesting. Oh yeah, that was that was a really great. I think did we did I allude to that earlier? Um, that was in. Oh yeah, well that was in 2020, so uh, things were difficult. I think I was given the award, the Valerie Gleason Development Bursary, which comes from the Crawford College, um, and based on my proposal to go to the north of Italy, to. Uh, to research the material, really, I said in my initial proposal, I was going to do a lot of visiting quarries and sort of looking at the environmental side of that and what it's actually like for the landscape. And uh, also, it kind of, but it did come from my interest in um, 
I always draw in chalk and then sort of chalk and marble are the same thing. And I just imagine this dusty, chalky place that I'd feel really comfortable in, actually. And um, the uh, initially in my proposal, the learning to carve thing wasn't very prominent. I had said that I'd meet marble carvers and things, but um, but things change sometimes. Um, yeah. So that was in 2020. And then I obviously couldn't go. There was no traveling that year. And so in 2021, they kindly passed it along, you know, so I was able to do it then. And there was that window of opportunity in, in the summer in 2021 that we were able to travel for a bit. And I remember just talking to people and everyone was such a naysayer. People were like, like yeah, it's not going to happen because, you know, the travel restrictions were changing all the time and we yes. weren't sure whether we could. And it was scary. Uh, Travelling felt scary then. It was very... Uh, yeah. you know strange and like you know, so mask strange. and of course Italy was where it all came from <laughs> yeah the north of Italy as well you know people were just <laughs> are you but, crazy um, yeah but you know it was along it was 2021 by then and we'd moved along and most people were well here things were calm I did find in in Italy when I got there that they were much more traumatized you know it was a very serious situation there um and and we'd become a bit more complacent here. So I think it was like, yeah, it was interesting to see the two, the two different places. And it was very interesting to be a traveler, to travel at a time when everyone you met hadn't traveled. You know, airports were really weird then because like nobody'd been on a plane for years. Yes. And oh God, it was so strange. But um anyway, that window of opportunity opened and I went for it. And after things had I would say my flight was cancelled a couple of times and then it was put back on and I made it to Italy. And I, so what I had done was I made, I had made contact with a a school in the mountains that teaches carving. And I told them that I was interested in meeting people who would teach carving and I would do a week of learning, but that could I possibly stay there for another week while I went and did my research in the quarries nearby. And they said that'd be fine. And, uh, so they had communicated me totally communicated with me in English completely. And so I was feeling great about that too, because my Italian's not really good. And I so I arrived there in Italy, rented a car and drove on the right for the first time. Ah wow. It was really yeah. But you know, I managed. And by the time I got to the mountainous roads where this where this uh teaching this uh sculpture school is there was only room for one car anyway, so it didn't really matter. More like Ireland. Which side of the road you were on, you know? So all my driving on the right went out the window because I was just like driving on this tiny little, very steep mountainous road. Anyway, I arrived late and there was nobody there, but there was a little note on the door and it said, Orla, we've gone to the restaurant in the next town. Uh, come and meet us there, you know. So I found the next town and I walked into this restaurant where they said they'd be. And I saw this huge long table with 20 people sitting at it. And then I listened and they were all speaking German. And I realized (laughs) they were, it was, it was a German. They were based in Berlin. I knew that, you know, and the teacher was German, but I didn't sort of realize that it was going to be entirely in German. Like so they were a German school based in Italy. Yeah, like, and they have a school in Berlin as well. And so, like, they just, you know, I was welcome, but yeah, I was the Do only. Do you have German? German? No, but I did speak a bit of Dutch because of living okay. in Amsterdam, and I did German in school all those years ago. So I had by the end of two weeks there, I completely 
in my own head anyway, was speaking German. I could understand a lot of what was going on. It was amazing. But, you know, it was so confusing. It was like really hot. I'd been driving on the wrong side of the road. And then suddenly I was expected to understand this language, you know. But luckily, a lot of them speak English and they were lovely. So that was the first day. And then um, we started the next day with with learning how to carve. And, and were they all experienced carvers or were they, they, they'd been um, there for a while? Or they were, everybody was more experienced than I was. Okay. Um, and some were professional and some were sort of people who were retired. Actually, there were a good few. There was a, I was living in a house with um, a retired Lufthansa pilot and um, a sculptor as well. Had yeah, you done so carving was, before in the Crawford? Or was this your first time carving in first stone? First time, completely first time. Never, ever done any stone carving, except Roddy, my partner, had bought me some stone carving tools and I had an old bash in the shed, you know, in preparation for this. But okay. I'd never carved anything. <laughs> I didn't. I love throwing myself into situations where I don't have a clue what I'm doing. I don't know. But what you're that's... so interested in materials. I can see yeah. why. And yeah. having cast be yeah. the person who creates the other side is the next obvious step for you. So tell so. us about what that was like then carving. Oh, carving. Well, well, carving. What will I say? It was it very... sounded horrendous from your description of it. <laughs> That's just more of that like brutal honesty. It was, of course, it was amazing. And and it's, it was so interesting to get involved in a new material. And but it was sort of it was it was a mixture of everything that made it difficult was um you know feeling a little bit out of it not speaking german you know and then being in this foreign land and then being confronted with this thing which i had not given much consideration to before and being handed a pointy chisel and told to just you know take the skin off the stone because we collected all they say take stone. the skin so it's the yeah. outer well, layer um, he calls it um the teacher there sven called it peeling the stone um so what we did was we weren't using commercially cut blocks of marble. We were going down to a riverbed and we were gathering these as big as you could find lumps of marble. There, the river uh, near that town is directly underneath a marble quarry, which has been running since 1520 or something. And so these lumps of marble that you find in the dried out river, they are actually waste matter that's been um, washed down from the quarry. So the piece of marble that you pick up could be, it's, it is definitely a piece of waste matter that they've discarded that's rolled down the mountain. Could have been there for 300 years. It could have been one of Michelangelo's discarded bits. You know, it's really incredible that. Um, but so you try to pick out lovely white ones and you try to pick ones with no flaws and everything but everybody you know they all have like cracks in them and things like that so you bring them back we brought them back and then are they heavy or less you're like are you like is it quite physical even like picking up and yeah. lumping up yeah the hillside so like the bigger and stronger you are the better big piece of marble you can get you know because wow. you're you're looking for nice big pieces and uh but i mean i think that the, some of the professional guys that were there they were actually using cut bits of marble that were coming from the proper quarry, um, the proper stone studios and shops and stuff like that. I mean, the whole place is just completely, completely full of marble over there. There was a there was a street next to near us that was like partially paved in marble. Can you imagine that? And all these houses that are normal, straight little cottages, they all have marble steps going up to them and stuff because marble's everywhere. You it's know? a local material. It's like yes, they're it is. Um, patch yeah. cottage. Yeah, what, everything what's the at town all, called of, actually initially. Where where was it? Uh, that was that was a tiny town. It was called Atzano, and it was near a town that's a bit bigger called Serravesa, 
and that's near Pietra Santa, which is Pietra Santa is famously full of that's where people like Dorothy Cross and those people who work in marble big time. They go there and they oh, use the artisans who I've work seen in- her Instagram yeah. of these places she goes to. So you were near that. Yeah, yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. So yeah. you've got this. It also sounds very um, masculine, actually, from very macho, actually, this whole like, you know, going down to the riverbed and lumping, you know, getting this big lump of marble yeah. and carrying it back and starting it. Yeah. Like, was it was it were there many other women there? Um, yeah, there were women. We It was there were more men. But uh, let me think. It wasn't really um, an issue. In fact, one of the best and quickest working people there was a woman and she's a professional, you know, and she was, she just likes to take a bit of time. And this teacher was, you know, absolutely wonderful. And so she liked to spend two weeks and she'd come with a plan and she knew what she was doing. And it was part of a series of things she was doing back in Germany. And she was just enjoying doing it in the sunshine and talking to Sven about her ideas and sharing her ideas and things like that. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, so you, you I got this on. chisel and you were told to unpeel the skin. Yeah. So it sounds like, was... I just love the description and your writing mm-hmm. as well of that. It sounds like, you know, removing the skin of an orange is what I came. Yeah. Yes. The, well, the, so those stones, they've, they've been tumbling around in the water and in the river for a long time. So they've developed this sort of crust around them on the outside. So they don't look like lumps of shiny marble. They look really dusty and porous. And so before you start working in the marble, you've got to kind of get rid of that porous outer shell. So it's and the it, earth and all this sort of debris that's built up in them. It's not the marble itself, the skin. It's Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. It. It's just sort of, you can imagine, I probably, I haven't thought about it, but probably other stones that you find on the beach, probably they look very different on the inside. They're probably yes. cleaner and shinier, right? Yeah. Um, so you take that off. So you tackle that first. And also there are flaws in the stone. So you don't know what you're dealing with yet, because it could be a big kind of crack right the way through the middle, in which case you have a totally different shape marble. It's a bit so like the reveal from removing your, your plaster cast, isn't it? You don't know what you're going to get until you open it up. Yeah, absolutely. So um started to do that. And the first bit was like funny it was so bad I think I just made all these deep grooves and and then he taught me exactly how to kind of angle the chisel and use the hammer like that and I got into it a little bit but it was I found it very um I don't know it's something about bashing things I'm quite a sensitive person I probably or you're soft. like your charcoal dust and your your yeah. drawings yeah exactly <laughs> and I I just think I'm sort of sensitive to things and it was it felt sort of oh they thought I was crazy talking about this afterwards, but it felt sort of violent. It was like there was a violence to the process. It was you had to hit hard. And if you weren't hitting hard enough, you had to hit harder. And, you know, I really struggled with that. But so I did my gentle chipping away and I succeeded in removing the, the skin. And How in the middle that of take? that, I spent, um, that take the it took me two days. <laughs> it doesn't take people two days normally, but it took me two days to wow. get it completely peeled. And then I was looking at this thing that now it had little marks and bumps all over it, but it was starting to be shiny. You know, there's these little crystalline, um, this has a crystalline structure, the marble. So it's, it glints a little bit in the sun and it's starting to look a bit more beautiful. And, um, and then, but there was a crack in it. So then I called Sven over and he said, oh yeah, you need to get rid of that. So then he's like, you just bash it like this. So he's bashing it. And then, so this big chunk came out of it, 
And then he said he checked it all over and said that's good. Now there aren't any more flaws in this. In this do you have to remove that flaw? Like will it, will it break yeah. if you don't? Okay. Yeah. Well, it's just that if you don't remove the flaw, it's sitting in there. And then imagine you if you start making that your perfect body or whatever shape you're making. And then you'll just one day, one time you'll just tap and then that flaw will open up. That whole crack will come and okay. that whole bit will fall off. So it's, it's like, stable, you've got to, basically. Yeah, yeah, it's not stable. Exactly. So you've got to get it to this compact stability on the inside by removing all those flaws. Yeah. So Sven helped me with that because that required a lot of bashing. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And what did you make? Well, what I made in the end, oh, I'm, I was so... I was so pleased about what I made in the end because it was a pure expression of what I was feeling. <laughs> it was like, so he bashed out that flaw and that, so then I was looking at this lump of marble and it looked like a big soft squidgy thing, really. It was sort of all soft and it had this dent in it. And I put my, the base of my palm and into the dent and it sort of fit perfectly and I just thought that is weirdly nice and familiar and cool in the inside. And it sort of fits me somehow. And then I looked down and I put my other hand on the thing. And the first thing that occurred to me is this is like the, my other job because I have another job, which is a baker. You know, I run a bakery as well. No, and I did not I, know that. Yes, And I've and I had spent many, many, many years training bakers and yeah, baking bread and I think the familiarity first was about that. It was like, there I was standing there. I was wearing an apron as well because it was, uh, that's, you just wear something to protect you. And I was standing there wearing an apron with my hand on this big squidgy looking thing and, and feeling finally a little bit relaxed and comfortable. And I thought, oh, maybe it's to do with bread. So I thought I, um, I started to work the marble a little bit to make it sort of even more exaggerated in its curves at the places where if it was a lump of dough, it would kind of squidge down. And then I just kind of forgot about the bread thing a little bit. Is it becoming a bit of a cliched thing? And just went back into the marble. And I just thought, I'm going to carve out the rest of my palm. Not the whole thing now, but just the parts that would stick in and my fingertips. And then I'll do the same on the other side. But how am I going to do that? So I got a bucket of mud and clay and made a kind of a wet, dark slip and put my hands in it and then just impressed them onto the marble. And then I used those, I let it dry and I used those marks to chip around to show where the fingers would be, the fingertips and the palms. And uh, it really started to work. And I I worked away on it and then I had my own hands as reference point all the time. So I was just, it was easy then after that because I would just put my hand in and go, oh no, I need a bit more off that thumb side there or a bit more off that bit there. And then I had really good fun. I really just... I kind of stopped caring and just went, this is great, you know. And then I smoothed out and I found out that inside my stone, it was a little bit darker than the outside, you know. It was kind of a darker grey and that just made the indentations look even more... Um, like you'd be pressed into almost, Yeah, yeah, like I'd really pressed in. So I just made this... So it looks like a very... like Like almost like a soft thing that you can impress. And so I worked away and it was on my fingers and my palms and then... Another thing started happening, which is when people were coming over and putting their hands into it, I would see the difference between their hands and my hands and everybody would comment on it. I have quite big hands and people would, you know, come along and they wouldn't even reach where my fingertips were. And that created a lot of kind of discussion about the differences between our hands and things. So it became and I actually thought afterwards 
that you know that whole in the COVID thing there was no touching and and we need to touch and this was the first time people had been together for a couple of years and there was something so great about having this piece there that we could we were putting our hands in and like it was like touching you know suddenly we were able to touch again and uh, yeah so it kind of it had all these multi many functions that piece of stone but yeah I love it I made a second one after that but that was my that was my oh another little breakthrough with the material you know it's so interesting and so it's so interesting how you document how hard it is like it's not things don't just happen you know there's all that frustration where it's not working and then eventually you find your way in which I think is I love how you document that and that's part of it not just the end product it's the whole journey of you getting there is this something you're going to do more of of sculpture or is it just too hard no no I I am going to do more of it I think um I'm waiting I've got so what I did when I came back I um got them to send me. I went to the river the day before I left and I brought lumps of marble back up to the camp. And then Sven, who's who was so helpful and kind, um, arranged for them to be sent. So they arrived at my studio about two months later with my name on and with my clothes in because I I needed to stop the stones bumping against each other and I'd already packed. So I just had these kind of like my work clothes from there, there in a pile. And I just said, Asher, I'll use them, you know, and I wrapped them up. So all the stones were wrapped in my clothes that I'd been wearing there. And um, when I opened the box, the smell, it smelled like, well, it smelled like me a little bit, but it also smelled a lot like there, you know, it smelled like I could just go straight back. back. Pretty amazing. Um, so I've got in my studio, I have a collection of about seven stones and I have plans for them. But I'm just sort of waiting on that. I'm waiting. It's, I'm not sure yet what I'm going to do. I have another one where I, I did carve my fingers in a much more moving sort of way. So there's a, um, uh, yeah, like as though I was more confident with the stone the second time. So it became, it's it looks more like um, I've kind of manipulated the stone. And like then I'm needing, going to push or, that. Yeah, there's that action. Mm-hmm. And is yeah. it something you think with each stone that it will be, the stone will tell you, you might have an idea, but then the stone will tell you what it wants, like the first one, or you will continue yeah. that metaphor. Yeah, no, I think it's like that. I think um, it seems to be like that because you, as I said, you don't know what's inside. In that case, with using stones like that, that you've just collected, you don't know. There could be something else inside. There could be some sort of streak or color or I don't know, masses of cracks, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. I don't know. It just That's struck me there, like even with your variety of process, it it tends to be very. Um, it's all black and white, isn't it? I mean, most That's of your true. drawings, your sculptures are white, so that you don't tend to have. Just when you mentioned color, there it struck me. You don't tend to use color. Is that? That's true. That? That's true. Well, I'm always asked about that. Uh, you know, or say I've just been through a lot of college, and you know, we talk about every aspect of things, and I have been asked that. And it's my relationship with color is a bit funny. I think color is um, it's sort of a responsibility to when you're using color because color has a huge effect on people. And I don't know. I'm just not sure that it's a language that I need to employ somehow. I don't know if that makes any sense. I've thought about it loads. Also, I am. I should not probably I don't know I'm I'm colorblind as well so I uh, got a red yeah 
So the red green sort of colorblindness, uh, which I think you have to have your dad and both your granddads. If you're female, you're less likely to be colorblind, I think. But I didn't driving. Are you allowed to drive with the you are allowed to drive? I'm not completely, you know, it's not everything's not gray for me at all by any means. But it's just um, uh, I it's mainly arguments about the color of brown things. That's what I found. (laughs) Like the difference between between um, a green thing and a slightly greenish brown thing. That'd be hard for me to 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 tell. I never thought that I was colorblind, actually, but um I went to do an eye test, normal eye test. And then I said, oh, by the way, do you do colorblindness tests? And she got out of the book and started, it's all these roundy things with do- colorful dots. Letters, in and she's yeah. Turning the pages and saying what numbers are there. And I just was saying, I don't know. And you had passed your driving test because don't they do an eye test as part of that, don't they? They yeah. do, but not a colorblindness test. Oh. Yeah. So you can anyway. see enough to see the traffic lights, which is the big thing. Well, actually, the traffic lights, the red one's at the top. So if the top one's ah. on, you don't go through. So you go by position. Not quite. <laughs> no, I'm exaggerating. I can really, I can tell the difference between a bright red thing and a bright green thing. But um, it's just the sort of the subtleties, you know. Must be unusual yeah. for an artist, a visual artist to, to have that. But of course, it led you in a different direction. It's just the way yeah. you see things. Yeah, exactly. That's so fascinating. Yeah. And tell me about the bakery. So is this something, is this your day job or is that something you do sometimes? Uh, the bakery, it's an, it's part of the whole story, really. It was um, when I stopped traveling in 2002 and came back here to Cork. Uh, my mom had had a health food shop in here in Cork the whole time that when we were growing up, that was what she did. And uh, she'd closed the bakery part of it down. And my sister Ellie was here and I was back. And we just sort of, she, Ellie wanted to study journalism and I wanted to study art, I was thinking. And um we thought, well, she will do this for a few years. We'll reopen the bakery, persuade mom to let us reopen the bakery because we can both bake and it's really easy and we didn't have jobs. And uh, I thought it would be a good way to kind of accrue some, What? <laughs> why did I think this? To accrue some money and then just go to art college after a few years. And um, so we reopened the bakery and we started selling bread at the market on Corn Market Street. And then we started selling at other markets and then we opened a cafe in Black Rock and you know bake with all our own stuff and that went really well so then we opened a second one back in the old health food shop where which my mom had now closed and then we opened a third one which was in in Fitzgerald's Park here in Cork and then we moved the bakery off our premises in Black Rock because it was just way too much and this was all going on while we were doing lots of other things and lots of creative things but it sort of is a creative thing, actually, running a business, Baking. you know? Yeah. Yeah. And also so, they, so the bakery in Fitzgerald's Park, is that yours then? Or is that? Yeah. Yeah. My, my So Ellie left the business a few years ago and uh, my partner, Roddy, who I also met and fell in love with in, 20, in 2002, uh, the same year that I started the bakery, the same year I finished traveling. It was it was a very turning point sort of year. But Roddy joined the business a few years later. Uh, so and then Ellie's left now with that's a good few years ago and uh, we still run it we still own it and Roddy does a lot of the um, the sort of on the ground management and then I do a lot of the I pay all the wages and deal with the sort of administration yeah that kind of stuff and decision making we have a meeting once a week and stuff but I, there's nothing to do with baking really anymore in my life because um what's the right. name of the bakery for anybody interested 
Oh, well, it's called the Natural Foods Bakery because the health food shop of my mom was called Natural Foods. So we were the Natural Foods Bakery, which I know is a kind of a clunky name for a business, no. but uh, just, yeah. I had no idea. I've been in, I've been in that um, uh, bakery. I had no idea it was connected to you. That's another yeah. connection. Yeah. yeah. That's so interesting. Oh, well Family done. biz. Yeah. I suppose <laughs> like the day job as well, it gives you that freedom as well to keep paying for materials and you can take the pressure yeah. off. Actually, yeah. I'm just going to ask you about that. You you apply for a lot of grants as well, don't you? For you were saying that you your year this year will be based on grant approvals and what happens. Mm. Mm. So how long do you spend? You talked about you described applying for the grant or the proposal for the Crawford and how you had to reiterate that. How much time do you spend on that whole process of applying for things or writing proposals? Um, well. It's it's a it's sort of been a lot this year because I finished the MA. If you're studying and you're a student, you're not you're not really eligible for lots of those things. So um, the thing you know, but I've always put a bit of time into that. Definitely, I think it's good for me to step outside of what I'm doing and to try to describe what I'm doing to somebody else. And that's part of the process because you've got to try to narrow it down and make it make sense to somebody. You know, so uh, that's why I like doing that. I, I, so, so the question is how much time do I spend? Um, I've spent more time than I want to this year. So I've spent a day a week probably since, um, January. Um, yeah, on, like writing proposals and yeah, yeah. That's writing a lot. Proposals and that, uh, yeah, but I'm just getting, I'm, I've decided, I was just saying this the other day, like that's grand now for me. I'm not going to do any more of that this year. I just want to make now. And okay, so you, you've applied and you'll see what comes back and yeah. you're making in the meantime. Yeah. yeah and exactly. how do you handle, um, I don't know, rejection if they, if they do, like they say no or? Oh, it's terrible, isn't it? I mean, for me, I think I'm not probably, I don't think that it's nice for anybody. And I would say that rejection probably makes me a little bit sad every single time. But it's weird how much there is of it. <laughs> That's very honest of you, actually. Most people don't say that. I think it oh. does make us all sad. It, it, yeah. Rejection. Well, you know, it also depends on how invested you are and how absolutely bloody perfect you think that your work would be for that specific thing. That, like, I've only had one really where um, I, I just thought this is for me, this is ideal, I'm going to do this, Perfect. it's great. And then and then that doesn't, that didn't come back and then I was really crestfallen. And then I have a very great person in Roddy, actually, my partner who who isn't involved in the art world and sort of sees things very differently to me, I think, in some ways. But he's, he's I brought my, my sadness about the rejection to him and he just, he just sort of, he toughened me off a little bit that day and just said, you know, now you're not a student anymore. Nobody is, you know, it's going to be like this. If you can't handle this, I'm afraid you're doing the wrong job, darling. You know, so I just had a little word with myself then and picked myself up and applied for other things and got rejected, you know, but some things have come through. So, you know. Ah, and you mostly, because yeah. your work seems to be very project based, that you have this idea mm -hmm. and you follow it through. So you're mostly applying for projects to fund your travel, your materials, or do you yeah. enter submissions like um as well? Yeah, I did. I've entered um let me think, submissions. No, actually not not that much. It's more project-based and funding things. Um and let me think about 
oh, I submitted to, I tried to get into this great looking show in in, in London, but I was rejected. Boo hoo. Um, so I do that too. But no, it's more about funding. It's more about I have a plan and I want to do something, but I'm going to need some help to do it. It's not really, uh, here's some stuff that I made last year and I want to put it into your exhibition. So it starts with your idea. You have it an does, idea really. and you yeah. want someone help support with achieving that idea. That's right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And do you ever like sell the work then or is that not relevant or does it go into collections? Oh, yeah, it's it's definitely relevant. It's great to sell work and I think it's brilliant. I, I need to concentrate a bit more on that now. I've had the luxury of being in college, you know, recently doing the MA. That is such a luxury because you get to push and explore and it really doesn't matter whether you sell things. And I mean, that's that's great, right? <laughs> but I have to be, but I have luck. I've been very lucky and I have sold a lot. Almost everything that is saleable in the most recent shows has sold, you know? So um, I I kind of make things that aren't saleable sometimes, like huge, enormous monoliths with chalky projections on them. I can see how that's not going to sell. Where do you um, store but, all these pieces then? Are they all in your studio? Or I have a storage. I actually, we have a storage um container I split it with the bakery it's like got bakery equipment and massive chalky monoliths I love it (laughs) yeah because I make really big things as well and my studio would not be tenable if I kept everything in there oh that's handy that's handy storage is a huge issue um so what what tell us about your studio practice then so you said you do um documentation or the proposes one day a week what is it mm-hmm. like you go, do you work like full-time in the studio or part-time do you have music um, oh, on? what's it like I it's I'm not a great routine person I just never have been so um I don't have some sort of I don't have a like I go there every day at this time but I can put in huge amounts of hours in my studio my studio is in the backwater um artist collective there on uh, Wandsford Quay and I'm in the sculpture block, which is on the ground floor <clears throat> in the courtyard. So I can drive my van up to it as well and, you know, unload things and load things. Um, and actually having that studio has been the single most wonderful thing in my life because <clears throat> it takes me away from home because I've always had a space that I could work in. But, you know, we have children, you know, life carries on. Stuff always interrupts me. So it's it's been so wonderful there. And just it's a shared also, space, isn't it? It's not, it's open. It's, um, there are six kind of open fronted studios all in a row. And uh, there are usually a few of us in there at the same time, but uh, we're not facing each other. You know, you do still feel as though you've got your space and got lovely high ceilings in there. So you can, you know, mess around with high things and, and everything. It's There's something lovely and natural about it. It's not a forced thing like we're, we're all there together being artists. It's a very natural, just nice to be around other people who are making things. And in the sculpture block, we've got the clay. Bernadette Tute is there making stuff out of clay and her kiln is going, you know, and then Ben might be making, um, you know, casts down the end. And there are all these kind of smells and noises in the sculpture place. So I love that. And anyway, back to my studio practice. I If I'm working on something, I'm like a mad demon and I go there you know, everyone goes to school and then I just go there and I just work all day long and I don't stop. And then I do a lot of stuff outside the studio as well, thinking and for me, actually walking. I need to walk to get myself into this uh, frame of mind where ideas are flowing. And I do that almost every day. I, I have some sort of a walk. I drive to the woods 
I say, I'm going to my studio, bye. And then I get into the van and drive to the woods, you know, and do that for an hour and then go to my studio. So my practice is a little, it might seem haphazard, but it's usually very focused and directed for a period of time. And then it stops and it looks like I'm not there. And then I'm off in the woods and then I come back. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't think that I could say that I have a very um, sort of, I have no regime really. Would you go there every day during when your children? I go there most days. Yeah, I go there most days. Yeah. Yeah. But it's that luxury of being able to drive right up to the door and it's in the city centre. It is amazing. It's fantastic. And the supports there as well, just um the way that it's run, you know, you have a lot of opportunities to to take part in things and just to muck in and that you know, there are always talks. People are always um inviting you to things if you're if you're in there. And it's great. It's in the most amazing place, really. Yeah, because you talked about the beginning where you didn't have any network and you didn't know artists, and so now you have that. Yeah, because I used to look at the backwater uh, from the outside and just think, how do you ever, how do you get in there? You know, it just seems like inaccessible somehow. It does. Yeah. I joined the network actually just before lockdown, actually, because I have a studio at home. So the backwater artist network is for people who don't have a studio in a shared communal studio. And it was really lovely. They opened it up to anybody who had a studio could join. And that was my first way of actually meeting artists. Um, It was all lockdowns, it was all Zoom meetings initially, but it was. It's yeah. been great because you realize artists aren't scary people. Yeah, <laughs> they're just exactly. real people. It's great. <laughs> and I went to a crit with, uh, they do these things. Did you, have you been to one of those? I have had one Megan, of those, yes. Megan Eustace and Cassie Eustace, and they do this crit. So you bring your work and they have this great system. I took part in it and I absolutely loved it. That you you put your work up and then you go and sit at the back of the room and then they just sit there and you're like a sort of spectator. You're an eavesdropper in a conversation specifically about your work. And it's so helpful. It's I just found it brilliant. It's really that, interesting. And they yeah. it's interesting how they the language they use, like they'll say, this is a painting on canvas. Mm. This is not framed. This is they just describe it from the outside in and yeah. very, you know, very um, factual based. Yeah, it's great. But it's amazing the it things is, that it, yeah. The you never that get that insight of what people, when you're not there, what are they saying about your work? And of course, they're artists and they're very sensitive, but it is very interesting. I did that once, actually. It was um, a great way of testing out new ideas and seeing how people respond to it. Absolutely. Yeah. And you're a member of the board directors there now as well. And what does that Yeah, that's right. Out? Yeah, I'm delighted to have a role there, actually. It's great. I'm really, I just think it's such a great um, resource not just for the members that are lucky enough to have studios there, but as you say, for that network and for the city, you know, there's so much potential there and so much good stuff. And I just thought to myself, like, I wouldn't mind giving a few hours of my time, you know, every week or month or whatever. And, and you putting have a business, in background in business as well. So you have more to offer. You're not just a visual artist. You have I've had some experience. Commercial side. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So hopefully. That's very interesting. Yeah. And what would you say uh, is the best advice that you ever received as a visual artist? I thought you were going to ask me that. And I, I sort of, I thought of one thing. Generally speaking, I like advice that comes in sideways. That is just somebody else says something and you think I'm going to take that on board. I'm not a great one for the sit down there, my son, and I'll tell you some good things for your life, how to go and live, follow your dreams. Um, But actually, I'll just tell you this one thing. And that is, um, I mentioned him earlier, Dr. Michael Waldron from the Crawford. He's a fantastic curator there and um, just all around 
interesting, great person. And I was having a chat with him recently enough, and I think it was a studio visit. I think I was waffling a bit and I was talking about my work and I think I was it was coming up to a talk and I was going to be giving a talk and I was sort of saying some ideas. And he just said, and I don't think he meant this to be sage advice. He just said, I would say just to be always very sure that you really mean what you're saying when you talk about your work. And I just took that on board because I've I've said that to myself so many times since then. He doesn't even know that he, he won't even remember saying that probably, but I now I ask myself if I'm writing something about my work or if I'm formulating an idea or preparing to talk to you, say, or something. And I say, I hear myself saying something about my work. I ask myself, do I really mean that? Or did I hear someone else say that about my work? And I've decided to adopt that because it sounds cleverer. Or am I getting drawn into how someone else perceives the work? So it's just, I think it's a beautiful bit of advice is to just check in with yourself. Do I really mean that? And it probably stops all that art speak as well. And that's helped this authentic, uh, honest descriptions you put in your writing, because they are very honest and very vulnerable, and um, which I find very appealing. Um, but that probably does help with that, because they come across as very real. That you're not yeah. trying to be, it's not just all this intellectual, you know, statement about your the work in inverted commas. Yeah, that's right. If everybody just asks themselves a bit more, do I mean, like, what do I mean here? Do I? And it's mean- hard. Sometimes it's hard to know what do I mean? Like, what is yes. it about? Because it so, it can be so ephemeral sometimes to, uh, so it doesn't need to take someone to keep asking, well, what does that mean? Well, what mm. well, what does that mean? Um, mm. And, and what advice would you have for any emerging artists or somebody who's thinking about going to art college or somebody who's starting off listening today? Um, I would say, well, for, ask yourself whether you mean it first <laughs> when you're going to tell people things about your work. But um, I would say to everybody to remember that you can always ask people things and that the, the actually the art community here is chock full of generous people who are so delighted if you ask them stuff. So it can be a practical thing like you know, I can't figure out why my plaster is so sloppy or can you show me how you stretch that canvas or something like, I mean, think of yourself as an artist at me, like you'd be so delighted if somebody knocked on your door and said, can you give me 10 minutes? I need to ask you something because it's all, it sort of is all about sharing. We're doing this thing together. So I would say like, don't be shy about asking things because you'll, you'll meet happy, smiling faces. No one's going to, I'm hardly anybody's going to say like, go away. I don't have time to talk to you. So when you're coming out of college and you're feeling lost, just go around asking people things because it'll lead places too. you know, you can go and ask a a gallery some mundane question. They might just get interested in you and start talking about something else. So be asking always. Yeah. Yeah. And that can even be done on Instagram, even with the direct message, somebody like what what material is that? Or, you know, most people will give that answer. Yeah. Very generous. You're right, actually. Yeah. Great way of learning. I think people are really generous and keen. Yeah, keen to help. Yeah. And if you were to, if you could meet any artist, who would you have loved to have met and what would you say to them? Um, well, there's one artist that I would love to spend time with and that's Tacita Dean. Do you know her? Um, and I don't think that I have any specific thing that I'd ask her. I think that I would probably annoy her by asking her to repeat herself and say everything she's ever said and written um, she's she's a great proponent of analog um, processes, but she also is she's sort of um, 
she's open to all sorts of uh she's open to fate and things that just happen and she makes all these amazing projects so i'd like to spend time around her and then there are another there are two artists that i thought of cornelia parker is just great and i would love to spend time with her but i think i'd like to be her helper i'd like her to say to me go over there and smash all those cups and we're going to rearrange them into this particular formation and i could have a do a thing you know um, and then there's another artist, Andy Goldsworthy, who works outdoors and uh, makes uh, sort of interventions, but very gentle in nature. And again, it'd be like the Cornelia Parker thing. I think I'd like him to say, go into that field and collect me every blade of dead grass and bring it over here and we'll make something. I'd like to do something with somebody, but I don't think I'd ask them too much, really, you know, but those would be three. There are be loads, present. actually. But yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Just being there. That'd be so cool. And yeah, if I could meet those three people. And then we could go for a pint after. That'd be great. Oh, fabulous. <laughs> and what are you working on at the moment then? Well, um, after we hang up here on this call, I'm going to zoom out to McCroom to Chapel Hill School of Art. And we're going to have an exhibition meeting. Um, I'm part of a group called F Project. And we work mainly with analogue film, analogue photographic processes, but with other things too. We just have a kind of an analogue attitude. You know, we like some people... Uh, do performance and stuff too. Uh, we're planning a show there and that's on the 30th of June that it's opening. And it's um, it's all about light and um, how we perceive light. And so it, it's I'm going to be throwing in a lot of my stuff from the Crawford and my, my day going in photographing those different um, rays of light that were shining through windows. And, and uh, uh, I might even bring out the old slide of the Bay of Biscay. So we'll see. So that's what I'm working on right at the moment. And I'm making a series of drawings um, based on those photographs. So there are some of those photographs um, where the light, the camera is not quite up to the job of capturing the light fully. So, you know, you get that kind of distortion and the places where the camera has failed. I'm making drawings of just those sections. Um, this is like an incomplete thing. So I probably shouldn't talk about it anymore. I just started a few days ago. That's very interesting. It's a real connection with the the sun and the drawing, the partial drawing and your partial cast. I can see how that follows through your work. And uh, with the um, the F project, you have a, a large image that you made without using a, without using a camera. Mm, can you tell yeah. us about that, that process? Um, that's one particular piece, uh, again, called Touch. And it was I made it when I came back from Italy, actually, and it was still all thinking about the stone and the hands and the, all that. Uh, that is... That is a, it's made on a large format negative. So it's four by five inches. So it's quite a big thing. And it, they, so I used one of those and I used the chemistry that you used to develop the um, negative. And I shouldn't have done this really, but I dipped my hand into the chemistry. Roseanne's going to absolutely kill me if she hears that. But and I used it to make an impression on the negative and then I developed it. So so um, I ended up with a with a large negative that looks like this, mostly with nothing on it. And then just with a few little lines from my from the impression of my hand. And then I printed that big size. You know, it's you a, printed the impression from your hand. Yeah, I did. So it's a bit like and, your hand in the sculpture, isn't it? It's like your. Yeah, I uh, love it. Yeah, connected. And the material, you know, it's something very important but to me. But touching it. 
touching it and being physically there. And that that image is like physical proof that I was there somehow, you know, and I could smell that chemistry on my hand. And yeah, it's it's I'm always kind of sort of insert myself right into the material somehow, like actually literally inside the stone or inside yeah. that. I love that of toxic chemicals that's in the dark room. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love that. Or I think your process is fascinating. I think I could talk to you all day, but I will let you off to your exhibition meeting. And um, for anybody who wants to see more of your work, where can mm-hmm. they find you? Um, easy to find on Instagram. I am Orla O'Byrne on Instagram. And uh, I have a website that is OrlaO'Byrne.com. So that's the best place to see me. Yeah. And it's a great website, actually. It's a really detailed description of all these exhibitions and links to all the writing which is fabulous and um I was going to ask you that do you think have you ever thought about extending the writing because some of the writing reads like it could be like a work of fiction like an art detective book or something like it's it's very compelling the narrative is very compelling and even you're describing it there it could have been a film some of it have you ever thought about doing that I really I've only just started thinking about doing that, but I wouldn't be surprised if I did something like that. Um, I don't know how to control that. I don't know how to turn that tap on and off. Uh, Like I've been working for so many years, turning on and off the the visual art tap, if you know what I mean. I can control that quite well. I know it's my language. I know how to work in visual art, but I don't know about writing. It's those things that you've read came upon me and I just wrote them down and I thought that that reads well I like that but I don't know how to get that to happen again yet because I, I and don't do you have journal that do you have like a, a journal every day or that kind of writing practice um, yeah I've always been a really good diary writer or something um in recent times not I sort of uh I was extremely busy last year in college and we moved house and it was just a really mad year um so I haven't been so good but from the age of 10 I started writing a diary on one particular day, actually. I'm thinking now it was like something happened and I thought I'm going to start writing. And I wrote that day and I wrote, I have a diary from when I was 10 to when I was 18. Almost wow. And it's just like, it's, oh, it's, you know, you imagine the changes you go through in that time. But uh, yeah, so that started me off. And then sporadically throughout my life, I've I've been a good writer, a good journaler. But it's, but yeah, maybe, maybe I just need to do that a bit more and see what comes I out. I think it sort of feeds into your visual practice as well. It seems to be a link. One is feeding into the other, but I just thought your writing is very good and very strong. I just think it would be, and it comes across very natural, but I suppose maybe the whole thing with writing, and they say it's a bit, it's different to art in that you just need to produce it and not edit it at the beginning, just get it mm-hmm. out onto paper or onto the screen, wherever, and then worry about the editing with an editor or whatever in the future. Mm-hmm. But just mm-hmm. you got to get that first draft out, isn't it? Yeah. So I suppose maybe yeah. it's like that first rough cast or whatever. Yeah. Um, my sister is an absolutely phenomenal writer, in my opinion. Um, and you know the way siblings often will do that thing that, that we love each other very much and we would just sort of like give each other the space to do the thing. So... I think there's always been, much as when we were teenagers, I had long hair and she had short hair. Okay, it's like, so she's a writer and you're the artist. She's a writer, so I'm an artist, you know. And <laughs> that doesn't mean that we can't cross over now that we're adults, you know. But it is that funny thing that I've never considered that I need to worry about writing because that's taken care of over there by Ellie, you know. Yeah, yeah, no, I just think it could be, I just think it was that whole art thing. Um, I don't know, I could see something there. Mm. Who knows? But um, yeah, I'd love to write something now, though. Yeah, I really, I'll have to uh, just see how to do that. <laughs> One more thing to add, you know. 
Well, I wish you huge success with your upcoming exhibition and with uh, waiting for all these proposals. I hope you get all the grants and keep in touch. I'm really interested and excited by all your projects. And for anybody who'd like to dive a little bit deeper, I'm going to include photos of Aura's work and links to her social media and her website and links to some of this, uh, her fabulous writing as well, which I found really, really compelling. And thank you all for listening to this episode of The Warrior Artist. Uh, make sure you subscribe. And if you have a few moments, I'd really appreciate if you could rate, follow or review as this helps others find me. Um, any feedback or suggestions, you can get in touch with me on Instagram at Aideen underscore Glynn. That's E-A-D-A-O-I-N. And through my website, AideenGlynn.com. Wishing you all the best with your creative journey. Have a great week in the studio. And remember that you too are a warrior artist.